You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. I felt inspired this week to talk about the practice of letting go. And the reason is that so often we encourage ourselves and each other to, quote, let go of something that isn't serving us. Maybe it's something that we can't change. Maybe it's something that's causing us deep harm. But it is something that is in our lexicon pretty regularly. And I think there can be a real tendency to oversimplify this process, to let it sort of exist as some vague advice that can fall pretty flat when we're not sure what that even means. What does it mean to let go? How does that apply to me in this specific situation? What would that look like? How would I know that I had let go? And and why is that important? So my goal today is to share with you how I define letting go, what it is and what it isn't, and some key elements, as I see them, of what a letting go process can involve. And if you're able to personalize these reflections to your own life, I think what I share today may feel more resonant and meaningful. So I encourage you to begin before we launch in further by considering Whether there is some kind of behavior or habit, relationship, thought pattern, some kind of self-limiting belief that isn't serving you in some way in your life right now, and what might it mean to let go of that behavior, habit, relationship, thought pattern, or belief? Maybe that behavior is tending to put other people before yourself. Maybe it's even putting their opinions before yourself, their needs before yourself. Maybe there's a relationship in which you don't feel heard or a limit that you've expressed that isn't being observed or respected. Maybe you have some kind of belief that you're not good enough, not capable enough, that you shouldn't work towards a certain goal because you probably won't achieve it anyway. I have so many people come to me who are trying to let go of perfectionism, feeling like unless they are excelling in all domains of their lives that things will fall apart or that they won't be liked. I have so many people talk about putting on a bit of a mask, feeling some kind of pressure to like certain things or have certain kinds of personality traits when they're around other people. I've heard people talk about feeling as though their worth is measured by their productivity and these kinds of external measures of success that our society often emphasizes. And of course, the pressure to be 
all things to all people and all domains and work ourselves into a grind in that kind of way. So I encourage you to take a minute to pause and consider, is there a relationship, a thought pattern, a behavior or habit that is impacting your life right now in a negative way? And would you feel a sense of freedom, liberation, or relief if that aspect of your life had less control over you? And so as we walk through these reflections today, I encourage you to keep in mind this behavior or relationship or thought pattern that you've identified to personalize some of these sharings to your own life. Many of you may have heard this metaphor that we commonly use in psychology of a tug-of-war game. And you can imagine you on one end of the rope and a monster on the other end. And that monster can represent self-doubt, feelings of unworthiness, anxiety, a toxic relationship. So anything that you've identified that you would love to free yourself from that is exerting some kind of control in your life, some kind of negative impact. And between you and this monster is a pit full of lava. And you would just love for this monster to fall into this pit and disappear and never bother you again. So the monster's holding on to one end of the rope and you're holding on to the other and you pull and you dig in your heels and maybe you coil the rope around your hand or your waist and really fight this monster. And the more you pull on your end of the rope, the more the monster pulls just as hard. The more you fight against the monster, the harder you pull the rope, the more you are tugged towards the other side. And so we often use this metaphor to talk about dropping the rope as a potential strategy in our lives, a way that we can basically extricate ourselves from that fight against that monster. Because once we drop the rope, all of that energy and attention that we are spending on fighting that monster can be redirected elsewhere. If we drop the rope, we are free to walk in a different direction. We are free to allow our minds to consider or ponder or spend time and space in other areas other than fighting against the monster. And so yes, the monster is still there. Maybe the monster isn't even just there. Maybe it's kind of taunting us. Maybe it's walking around and following us. But our relationship to the monster has changed because we are no longer trying in vain to control it. We're letting it be. All of this being said, how we drop the rope really matters. If you look up the phrase to let go in the dictionary, it'll probably say some version of relinquishing one's grip on someone or something. And in my mind, this is a part of letting go, a very important part of letting go, relinquishing our grip, but it's not the whole of it. So yes, letting go is about relinquishing that grip, but how we relinquish that grip really matters. So in this tug of war example, if we're pulling really hard with all of our body weight and then just quickly let go as we're pulling, we're probably going to be ricocheted or propelled backward and fall down. We need to drop the rope gently. Maybe we even pair it with an announcement like, hey monster, I'm not fighting you anymore. I will let you be. I'm not playing this game. I'm putting down this rope now. Because once the monster realizes that we have stepped out of that game, 
it may drop its hold on the rope. It may drop its side of it. It might not fight against us as much. And so in many ways, when we release our grip, the monster might release its grip on us. At the same time, we also can't say, okay, monster, I'm not playing this game anymore, or tell ourselves, okay, I'm not playing this game anymore, but still be actually holding on to the rope, or maybe steering at the monster, or standing near the rope. We actually do need to step away. We need to fully drop the rope in mind, body, and spirit. So even if you drop the rope with your hands, but as you walk away, you're still scheming about all the ways you wished you had pulled the rope differently or what you could have tried to send the monster into that pit, you're not really dropping the rope. You're going halfway. You're going partway. You're also not going to be yelling at the monster, telling it to go away. We're also not going to be pulling the rope towards us. All of these strategies are not effective. And not only are they not effective, they're not letting go. They're not fully dropping the rope. Maybe we've dropped the rope with our body, but we haven't dropped the rope in other ways. So in my mind, letting go means gently letting be what isn't serving us and doing so fully in mind, body, and spirit so that whatever we were gripping or whatever we were pushing away can then coexist alongside of us without hijacking our energy and time. And that energy and time can then be repurposed. We are then freed up to focus on what matters to us most and to use that energy and time and effort and emotion to engage in our lives in more meaningful ways. So really, this is a process of self-liberation. As you consider letting go of something that doesn't serve you, I think an important first step is to approach this process with reverence and respect, to understand and appreciate that it takes time and to recognize that above all it is a practice and to me a practice is something that we actively are engaged in repeatedly and regularly there may be times when we are tempted to pick that rope back up again and pull even harder or try other strategies to get these monsters to leave our lives And so the letting go, the dropping of the rope, may need to be an ongoing commitment, something that we work on consistently over time, perhaps maybe in small increments, in a stepwise fashion, gradually over time, over the course of our lives. And the fact that this process, this practice of letting go can be challenging, that it takes work, that it isn't just a single action in time, doesn't make us weak or ineffective or failures. It makes us human and it speaks to how strongly we can attach to things that don't serve us. Even when there is distress, there can be a sense of stability in something that is familiar. And the alternative of making a change can feel harder to bear given all of the uncertainties and the unknowns. And so I think also recognizing the human aspect of this practice of letting go is really important so that we can treat ourselves with 
compassion and a depth of understanding that there are a lot of factors in place that can lead us to stay stuck in these patterns and stay attached to these habits and relationships and thought patterns that are not serving. The importance of practice at a neurophysiological level has been strongly supported by scientific research. And you may have heard the phrase, neurons that fire together, wire together. And this means that anytime we practice something, it could be a thought that we repeatedly think, it could be a behavior that we repeatedly engage in, the neurons associated with that thought pattern or behavior, with that practice of that thought pattern or behavior, become more strengthened and more connected. The brain literally changes in response to that practice. So each time I tell myself, I'm not good enough, that neural pathway is strengthened. And every time I engage in a behavior that reflects that I buy into that thought that I'm not good enough, that some part of me actually does believe that I am not good enough, whether that looks like not taking a risk, not speaking up for myself, staying in a relationship that is not good for me for fear that I can't do better, those neural pathways of me not being good enough are further strengthened. And again, coming back to the importance of compassion here, it's important to recognize that the strengthening of these neural pathways is not just an individual process. It's not our fault per se. We often face cultural messages that are very significant about being not good enough and ways in which we're falling short, whether it's because of what we look like or our personality traits or our identities or our career choices and that cultural messaging can also strengthen these neural pathways and none of us none of us is immune to the conditioning and messages of our culture so it's important to really really have compassion for ourselves that the strengthening of our pathways is not only our own doing That being said, even though this is larger than us, the ways in which these neural pathways are strengthened, it is on us to undo them and to weaken those pathways that are not serving us. There also, to this end, is a bit of a use-it-or-lose-it principle that applies to neuroplasticity. So when we practice resilience building and engage in habits that serve our lives better, We are not practicing the ones that cause us harm. And this can lead to what has been termed a neuronal pruning because the neural connections that are not practiced begin to weaken and wither away because those associated neurons are not firing together. So this process of strengthening connections and pruning or weakening of others can happen simultaneously, which is a beautifully synergistic process. And so the good news here is that this neuroplasticity means that our brains are dynamic. They are not fixed. They can grow and change at any point in our lifetimes, not just when we're younger, not just at key developmental junctures. And this is true for everyone. Everyone's brain is plastic. And so even with thought patterns and behaviors that feel ingrained, that we may understandably feel quite hopeless about changing, maybe we've been 
even told that this is just who we are, this is the kind of person that we are, there is capacity to change as long as we are committed to this practice. And as long as we make choices that align with the practice of these alternate thought patterns and behaviors. And in fact, research does show that there are factors that modulate plasticity or support neuroplasticity or affect the extent to which that plasticity exists. And some of those factors include motivation, how committed we are to practicing these patterns, attention, so our ability to really notice when we are on autopilot and reverting to a habitual way of thinking or behaving, and developmental skill, development of skills, so it is something that can be cultivated over time. And exposure, so continually approaching the, the new patterns and the new behaviors. So the reality is that anything we engage in repeatedly and regularly is a practice. And so if we are going to be practicing something all of the time anyway, it behooves us to choose something that can help us cultivate resilience. Now, of course, choosing the alternate behavior, the alternate pathway, does often take more time and energy and effort. But the truth is that we are practicing something anyway. So in many senses, we are simply replacing. And this isn't to say that the process of replacement is simple, but that we can think about it as a replacement rather than an addition, which sometimes can help it feel more accessible and possible given the real life parameters of our lives. I think our ability, our opportunity to cultivate resilience, to choose what we're growing, to choose what we are strengthening in terms of neuronal connections, and to choose what we're pruning out, what we're letting go of, is one of the reasons that psychologist and author Rick Hansen has coined this term positive neuroplasticity. And that term really refers to the practice of intentionally engaging in practices that will hardwire positive and beneficial psychological processes and resources in our minds that can help us build resilience. So there is a very positive and beneficial side to the neuroplasticity of our brains. It is a strength that can be built on and that can be so foundational to living lives with greater meaning and purpose and letting go of what isn't serving. With this framework of letting go as a practice being kept in mind, let's take an example of a relationship that is no longer serving us to highlight what that could mean in terms of a practice of letting go? How some of these pieces of research, some of these definitional elements of letting go, some of these metaphors, how this all could translate in a practical way. So the practice of letting go of this relationship that isn't serving us could mean leaving the relationship altogether. That's one option. It could also mean observing a new limit in that relationship, perhaps expressing a need that hasn't been met and ways in which that other person could work to meet that need more effectively. 
And for many of us who have found ourselves in this kind of situation in the past, I imagine that there probably is not a single human being on this planet who hasn't found themselves in a relationship that isn't serving them. We all know that taking these steps can be extremely challenging, even knowing on an intellectual level based on the facts that this relationship is serving, not serving, even knowing deep down in the wise intuitive part of ourselves that this relationship is not serving and that leaving the relationship or observing or expressing a new limit is the choice for us doesn't necessarily make that change easier. There is often still pain and loss, not just related to the relationship itself, but perhaps related to the vision we had for that relationship and our lives as a whole that included that relationship. So there are layers to letting go. It's not just one monolithic letting go entity. Those layers take time to shed. I don't just let go of this relationship. I don't just no longer have this person in my life if that is my choice to let go by leaving the relationship. I also let go of the vision I had for my life with this relationship in it. I let go of what might have been positive about the relationship, ways in which that relationship enhanced my life, ways in which it helped me grow. I also might let go of the sense of status or comfort I might have had with this relationship in my life and I trade it for a stepping into the unknown and more uncertainty perhaps and more questions. And as we all know, sometimes those uncertainties and unknowns and questions can convince us to stay in something longer. The familiar can sometimes feel more comforting even if it comes at a cost. So in that case, maybe I decide, okay, I'm not ready to leave altogether. Maybe I'm not even sure that's what I need. Maybe it's more about expressing my needs and observing a limit rather than leaving the relationship entirely. So maybe I test the waters. Maybe I let go a little bit at a time by spending more time alone, by trying to expand how I think about my life and identity beyond this relationship. Maybe I do a bit of thinking about what my relationship what my life might look like without this relationship in it to just sort of try it on in a cognitive kind of way. Maybe I experiment with observing some limits and thinking about, okay, well, in what ways could this relationship change to feel like it served me better in my life? And could I start asking for some of those things? Could I have more heart-to-heart type conversations with this person to help shape us toward what I feel I would need in order for this relationship to feel like it was serving me in the ways that I deserve and need. Maybe I figure out what supports I need to put into place to help me stick to the path of leaving the relationship or asserting new limits in the relationship before I take those steps. Maybe there's more scaffolding that needs to be put into place. So I set myself myself up for success by acknowledging the realities of what this process might mean for me, what it might look like, what it might require, and planning for the fact that it may be multi-layered and that process may take time. This kind of titrated or stepwise approach could of course also apply to a kind of behavioral pattern or tendency that I am trying to let go of. So I'll use a personal example here. 
For those of you who know me, I have a tendency to approach things with a lot of fire and a lot of intensity. If I'm going on vacation, now this would be a pre-COVID example, I tend to do a lot of research in advance. I want to know all of the restaurants I want to try, all the hikes and adventures I want to go on, and to plan it out to make sure that I have time for everything. If I'm preparing for a presentation or a session with a client, I intend to invest a lot of time and energy and thoughtfulness in that preparation. If I am in a yoga class, I tend to really go to my edge to deepen the posture to really find a growth edge in the pose and sometimes that can involve a lot of striving a lot of efforting and so on the surface none of this really sounds like life or death or all that harmful right it sounds like this all comes from a place of passion and from deeply caring and that is all true. It does come from passion. It does come from a place of truly caring. Yet there are times when this intensity can get in my way, particularly when it comes from a place of not trusting myself or not trusting myself to do something more spontaneously or organically without planning. Or maybe it comes from a place of self worth deficit so feeling like unless I'm giving something 100% or 110% there won't be a good outcome or it won't be well received or I won't be liked or someone won't think I'm a good therapist or maybe I'm comparing myself to other people in the yoga class or noticing some competitive vibe or edge there so these are all times when that intensity is not helpful because when I take those actions from that place, from that place of self-doubt or lack of self-trust or lack of self-worth, I'm practicing self-doubt and lack of self-worth and lack of self-trust. So the solution is not necessarily to go for the opposite extreme. I'm not advocating for having an apathetic attitude towards my yoga class or spending zero time planning or preparing for things that are important, but perhaps finding more of a middle path that allows me to let go of these needs for that level of intensity. So instead of spending, say, two hours preparing for a presentation, maybe I try to prepare for only one and a half hours to let go of that need to prepare and perhaps there's some underlying perfectionism there. And while I am practicing the letting go of the need to prepare for a certain amount of time, I'm also practicing trusting myself. I'm practicing acceptance of imperfection. I am practicing trust that I have the knowledge and skills and abilities to give an excellent presentation of high caliber with less investment of time and energy. And so this means that those neural pathways of self-trust, of imperfection, of acceptance of imperfection, of tolerance of imperfection are all being reinforced while at the same time the neural pathways of self-doubt and attachment to perfectionism and attachment to that striving are being pruned. So it's a both and win-win kind of situation. So another important consideration in our practice of letting go is related to something I just alluded to, which is radical acceptance. And 
many people use this term, and my personal definition of radical acceptance is embracing the reality of what is, of how things are fully and completely in mind, body, and spirit. And I really believe that this radical acceptance goes hand in hand with that earlier definition I mentioned earlier of what it means to let go. And there are different time points in the process of letting go where I think radical acceptance is really crucial. So at first, we can't let go of something until we're clear with ourselves about the reality of what it is that we need to let go of, what it is that we're attaching to, what it is that isn't serving us. We also need to be able to radically accept what it means to let go, what will be required, what will be involved, what might happen when we do let go, what the consequences might be. So I'll use another example from my own life, which has been very present lately, which is related to self-doubt. So at times, really questioning my decisions and wondering if I've made the quote-unquote right choice, whether it be in career, personal relationships, or parenting. And at the core, I do think this difficulty trusting myself, this self-doubt, really does boil down to a need to more fully embrace self-trust and that need to embrace self-trust goes hand in hand with a letting go of self-doubt and while I think many of you probably have an intellectual understanding maybe an experiential understanding of what not trusting oneself looks like for me to say to myself I'm gonna let go of self-doubt I'm gonna let go of not trusting myself I don't think is quite specific enough to allow me to really work on that in a meaningful way. So I think it really requires me to reflect on how that lack of self-trust shows up in my life. Does it lead me to ruminate on my decisions for a period of time that feels too long and in a way that really takes me out of the present moment? Does it lead me to excessively seek reassurance from other people in my life about the decisions I made? Do I really feel like I need validation from other people that I've made the quote-unquote right choice? Are there times that I actually don't follow through with the decision that I feel is in my best interest because I don't trust myself? Or do I have a tendency to hide? Do I not tell people about the decisions I've made or the amount of thought and intentionality I've put into that decision making because I'm ashamed or because I fear their judgment because I'm so convinced that it wasn't a good choice? So these are all examples of ways that reflecting on the nuances of how lack of self-trust in our lives could show up and how this kind of clarity can guide us towards specific actions that could be involved in letting go. But it's hard to let go if we don't have that clarity and if we're not being honest with ourselves about the reality of what that is. If I'm not radically accepting how that monster is showing up in my life, I can't begin to change it. So one way we can understand how closely we are radically accepting something or not is to look out for phrases like, 
I shouldn't or I should or this isn't fair or why me or this can't be happening because all of those phrases, all of those sentiments suggest that some part of us is fighting against reality and fighting against reality is not acceptance of what is, is not radical acceptance. If I'm thinking to myself, oh, I really shouldn't doubt myself so much, I've accomplished so much in my life or I should be better at ignoring these thoughts or this is so unfair that I'm bothered by these thoughts when there are so many other people in this world that have so much confidence in themselves and confidence comes so easily. All of those kinds of thoughts show that I'm stuck in rejection of reality. And so rather than just dealing with the pain of my self-doubt and how that interferes with my life, I'm now dealing with both the pain of my self-doubt, which is arguably unavoidable to some degree because that has been conditioned and reinforced throughout my lifespan. But I'm also dealing with the pain that comes from fighting against reality. And that part is avoidable. So radical acceptance in this kind of example could look something like, I really wish this weren't the case that I doubt myself so much, but it is how it is right now. Or maybe radical acceptance could look like recognizing all of the variables that have contributed to the development of my self-doubt, the reinforcement of my self-doubt over time to help me contextualize where this pattern came from, to have compassion for all of the influences that have reinforced it over time. So I struggle with self-doubt because I wasn't really taught how to trust myself. I was constantly criticized when I was growing up. So really recognizing all of the reasons that this behavioral pattern might be manifesting in my life right now. So once I'm radically accepting of the truth of the monster I am facing, the landscape of this monster and how it might have emerged and evolved over time, I then need to radically accept what I can do about it. And an important element of radical acceptance beyond accepting the reality of what is, is accepting the reality of what is all the way. And that means in mind, body, and spirit. So for example, if I say to myself, okay, I'm going to try to let go of self-doubt by not excessively seeking reassurance from other people. I'm really going to try to rein in that behavior. And when I make a decision, not do that. But in my mind, I'm actually still ruminating about the decision, still questioning myself. I'm not radically accepting all the way. I'm not really letting go. Or if I don't seek reassurance about my decisions, but instead ask people what they might do in a similar situation, I'm still engaging in a similar behavior. I'm still engaging in something that connects to self-doubt because I still want someone else's opinion about what they might what they might do in a similar scenario. Or maybe I've made the decision to not ruminate, not seek reassurance from other people. But I am moving through my life with body language and facial expressions that are not consistent with confidence, that are akin to self-doubt. So maybe I'm kind of crouched. Maybe I'm not making direct eye contact. Maybe my tone of voice doesn't feel that, that strong or that bold. That's also not going all the way. So there really is an important element here where letting go and radical acceptance come together. So in order for me to let go, I need to 
let go all the way. And in order to let go all the way, I also need to be radically accepting of what I am letting go of, how it is showing up in my life, and what that means to let go, what is required. And then, of course, there's radical acceptance of what follows from letting go. So there isn't always this immediate validation that I'm on a path towards personal growth or a sense of immediate liberation or exhilaration when I am radically accepting, when I am letting go. And there are times, as we all know, that not everyone in our lives fully support our changes because it disrupts that homeostasis that often exists in relationships and family systems and and us making a change, us letting go of a certain pattern that others have gotten used to can be disruptive in a way that people don't always support. And so there's also an important element here of radically accepting that letting go doesn't necessarily make problems disappear. So in our relationship example from earlier, when I am leaving a relationship or asserting a new limit in a relationship, that doesn't mean that the other person won't try to convince me to stay in the relationship or won't push back against this new limit. And so... There is a need to radically accept that we're not always immediately rewarded or reinforced for these actions and that the world around us doesn't necessarily just kind of fall in line either and that there still may be challenges even as we are practicing our letting go, even as we are practicing radical acceptance. And similarly, practicing trusting myself more doesn't mean that I will never face self-doubt again. Because in truth, self-doubt is adaptive on some level. It's actually helpful to have some kind of doubt. If we had zero doubt all the time, that might be somewhat narcissistic or overly confident. It's protective to wonder at times whether we're making the right decision. It gives us an opportunity to pause and reflect and make a thoughtful choice. So like the monster in the tug-of-war game, Letting go and dropping the rope doesn't necessarily make the monster disappear, but it does free us from having the monster dominate our lives. It allows the monster to coexist alongside of us as we continue to engage in our lives in meaningful ways. So remember, as you consider letting go of some relationship behavior or thought pattern that no longer serves you respect the process understand that it takes time and recognize that this is a practice and while it is often a challenging practice and your process will very likely be imperfect and non-linear you and your human brain are so deeply capable of letting go of these thought patterns and behaviors and tendencies, even those that have been quite ingrained and reinforced over time because of the capacity of our brains and our systems to be plastic and dynamic and resilient on a neurophysiological level. We can build new patterns, we can grow new patterns, and we can prune simultaneously. We have choice in what we choose to practice. That being said, in order to maximize our chances of 
growing resilience and pruning out what doesn't serve and to ensure that we have adequate supports in place for our practice, there needs to be ongoing commitment and we need to fully engage in mind, body, and spirit. We also need to radically accept the reality of what is. So whether it's the behavior, whether it's the thought pattern, whether it's the relationship, accepting the reality of what it is, how it doesn't serve, how it came to be, what it'll take to prune, and also radically accepting that there may be costs and consequences to letting go, even if there is much to be gained. We also don't need to be extreme about the process. We can let go in small increments. And letting go in this titrated, stepwise kind of fashion is skillful. It's compassionate. It reflects a depth of understanding of the complexity of this process. It represents an honoring and an acknowledging of the very real personal factors that compel us to stay in old patterns, as well as the societal forces that support our attachment to these patterns. So while we're up against a lot, there absolutely is hope and there is possibility if we choose and we engage fully and go all the way. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.